Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2? Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 6 through 23 as we continue our look at what it means to be the church. We've been kind of following the Heidelberg Catechism uh, this year, and we are in the Apostles' Creed on the section dealing with the church. It says, I, I believe in in the holy Catholic Church, and by Catholic we mean universal, the church of all times and in all places, not a particular denomination. I believe in the holy universal church, the communion of saints. So we'll talk a little bit more about the communion of saints next week, Sunday evening. But we've been using the, the letter to the Colossians because this is a church, and Paul's writing to this young church about what it means to be a church. And also what it means to deal with outside influences that sometimes come to the church and deal, and uh, all of us as churches even today have to deal with, with issues like that. In their case, it was a group of people that were sort of, you could call them the Gnostics, I guess. It's a sort of a pre-Gnosticism. But it was a group of apparently Jewish Christians who didn't quite get the gospel right. And they came and taught their version of the gospel, which was, Yes, you need Jesus, but you need more than Jesus. You need to have the secret knowledge as well. And, and more than that, you need some, some of these ceremonies and, and certain things. And we'll talk about those in, in just a moment. So Paul is concerned with this group. He, hasn't, he actually didn't found the church. Uh, one, of, one of the people that he had uh, brought to Christ, apparently, Epaphras was the pastor there. And, but he was a mentor to Epaphras, and so he's trying to encourage them. And he encourages them by saying, no, you haven't. You haven't misunderstood the gospel. Christ is the only way. He is supreme. He is sufficient. And as he'll say now in the passage that we're looking at, he is our fullness as well. We are complete in Christ. So let's look at these verses. Colossians 2, verses 6 through 23. So then, just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened into the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depend on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, putting off the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead." When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Let me read that again. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. 
Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He's lost his connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. We'll conclude our reading at that point. There's a lot there. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Holy Spirit, as you inspired Paul to write these words, we pray now that you inspire us to understand them and to seek to take them to heart and live them out in our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine, imagine that one day our council decided that in order to join this church, you had to become Dutch. Not only did you have to carry Queen Wilhelmina peppermints, wear wooden shoes, and plant tulips, but you also actually had to become citizens of the Netherlands. And then, what if our council, I would never do this, but what if our council went even further and said, in fact, that's the only way to be saved? Christ plus the Dutch culture. Well, we laugh at that. But in a simplistic sense, that's what Paul was dealing with in Colossae. A group of false teachers saying, Christ wasn't enough for salvation. And so Gentiles coming into the church had to first become Jewish. Gentiles had to first become Jewish. Be circumcised and follow kosher laws and all of those things. But, but in fact, then they went even further, adding to their theology things that were never written in the Old Testament, never written in the Torah. Well, Paul's concerned about this young church and has already encouraged them, but now he gets to the heart of the matter. Christ is absolutely sufficient for our salvation. He encourages them to live in Christ rather than play with the shadows. Now, do we ever have this in our lives? Do other Christians ever hold up different standards for us? Do they say, well, you can't be a real Christian unless you do this, or unless you don't do this? Or for that matter, does the world ever try to sell us a bill of goods on what we need for the good life? That's really all what, all what advertising is about, right? For the most part, advertising tries to, to sell you on this is what you need and to kind of create a felt need and then say this is how you can fill it. I still remember an ad years ago with the slogan, It's good to be rich and thin. Now, that catches your eye, doesn't it? What kind of product can I get to make me rich and thin? Well, the product was a candy bar, which if I had purchased it, I would be neither rich nor thin. But I want to talk about another advertisement. Back in 1969, Coca-Cola began an ad campaign 
touting Coke as the real thing. It's the real thing. It was a response to market research uh, that young people wanted something that was real, something that was authentic, something that was original as an escape from the phoniness that they saw in the world, the phoniness they saw maybe in their parents, the phoniness they saw in the culture. And so Coke billed itself as the real thing. Of course, it's the real thing also affirmed the importance Coke placed on being recognized as the original cola. Founded in 1886, it was merely 12 years older than Pepsi. But for Coke, this would always prove to be a major point of difference. They were the real thing. Well, Paul holds up Christ as the real thing. Versus the phoniness, the shadows of the heresy that was being promoted among the Colossians. And so Paul spent some time talking about, first of all, our life in Christ, the real thing, and then later he'll get into playing with the shadows. First in verses, verses 6 and 7, he says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Paul encourages them to stay the course. He reminds them, first of all, whom they had received. How is Jesus the real thing? Paul reminds them that they had received Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, you know, in the church we get to the point where these, a lot of these churchy words just kind of go right over us. And, and even the names of Jesus don't have as much uh, power as they might have and as they might have had in the first century to people for whom they were new. What does it mean to say Christ Jesus is Lord? Well, first of all, Christ reminds them that he is the long-expected anointed one, Messiah. Jesus is the name given to a historical person, one who really lived among them, but also means, of course, that he's the Savior. And Lord points to his divinity, that he's their king and head. He's, he's God himself. And so, it's a mouthful to say, this is the long-awaited Messiah Scripture has been prophesying about and not only is he a person, but he is our Savior and he is our Lord. That's saving a, saying a mouthful. And Paul says, hang on to that. Because that's at the heart of what you believe. That's at the heart of who you are. Well, if Jesus is the real thing, how then are they to live? Paul says, rooted in Christ. A picture of a plant, a, a tree. Rooted deep down Rooted in Christ, drawing nourishment from him as a tree, as a plant, draws nourishment from the water table below. Built on Christ as their foundation. There is only one foundation, Paul reminds them, and that's Jesus Christ. Strengthened in the essentials of their faith. Now, this was a direct a hit against those Gnostics because the Gnostics were saying, you know what? Faith is good for a while while you're kind of baby Christians, but then you grow out of it once you get this secret knowledge. And then you really know God. You don't need faith anymore. And Paul's saying, baloney. That's in the original Greek. Paul's saying, baloney. That you need to continue on and hold on to the essentials of the faith. And then they are to live in gratitude to God. Reminding them that they didn't do this themselves. That it's all of grace. It's all of God. 
Paul's primary purpose seems to be in this section to refute the false teachers who were saying Christ wasn't enough, which strikes at the very heart of the, of the faith. And so in verse 8, he describes their philosophy, their theology. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow or deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So he, he describes this Colossian heresy that, that these false teachers are bringing as hollow and deceptive philosophy. It's dependent on human tradition. It's dependent on worldly principles, just like so many false religions today. They were teaching that for salvation, one had to combine faith in Christ with secret knowledge and man-made rules. Secret knowledge and man-made rules. And the man-made rules, particularly regarding physical and external practices, such as circumcision, what they ate and drank, festivals. So in other words, it comes from the Jewish world. They're going back to the Jewish world, back to the kosher law, circumcision, all of these uh, Jewish festivals, and basically saying that the Gentiles were in some way deficient, and so they needed to become Jewish before they became Christian. And this is something Paul had to fight against uh, in almost all of his churches. Jews who had become Christians who didn't quite understand that it's a new thing in Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. You can come to God directly through him. You didn't have to go through the heritage of the past. And so Paul declares that a Christian, whether a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian, is complete in Christ, not deficient in any way, even if they don't follow kosher laws, even if they aren't circumcised. He says you're complete through your union with Christ who is the head over every ruler and authority. So he affirms Christ's full deity, first of all. That also refutes the teaching which said, their teaching which said that Jesus wasn't fully God. But more importantly for us, because he's already talked about that in chapter 1, it also talks about a Christian's fullness in Christ. Not only is Christ completely God, but we are complete in Christ. And that fullness in Christ includes putting off the sinful nature, which he represents by circumcision. He says, you want to talk about circumcision? No, you don't have to be circumcised like the Jews were. You have already been circumcised when you died with Jesus, who was circumcised, who was cut off in your place on the cross. You've already engaged in circumcision in that way. And then he talks about resurrection from spiritual death, represented by the coming up from the waters of baptism. So Paul says, in Christ you died, in Christ you come to life. And because of that, you're delivered from legalistic requirements, because salvation is always by God's grace, and you're delivered from evil spiritual beings. He reminds us that Satan was disarmed by Jesus, and that the, the, the case that Satan's bringing against us, trying to because Satan's a liar and he's an accuser and he wants to bring the case against us and plague our consciences and give us guilt that's already been removed by Jesus. He says, Jesus has nailed that to the cross. So he, he spends this time building them up, saying, we are complete in Christ. You don't need other things besides Christ. You are complete in Christ. And so then he goes on and says, so don't play with the shadows. Don't play with the shadows. Abraham Lincoln once said, character is like a tree 
and reputation is the shadow. The shadow is what we think of it, and the tree is the real thing. So that's the image there. Which would you rather have? The tree or the shadow? Which is the real thing? Paul's concerned that the Colossians don't get caught up focusing on the shadows and miss the real thing. Jesus is the real thing. But what some of these false teachers were lauding were merely shadows that had pointed to the real thing. And so he warns against some specific teachings and practices of the heresy. First, and most importantly, he warns against don't play with the shadows of legalism. Don't play in the shadows of traditionalism. Don't mistake the shadow for the reality. Don't mistake the sign for the real thing. You know, God worked really hard at preparing his people for their Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Torah, in the prophets, in the commandments, in the festivals, even in the legal system and in, in the, uh, the different aspects of worship in the tabernacle and the temple, all of those things God used to point toward Jesus to help us understand Jesus when he comes. They're all pointers, but they were never intended to be a substitute for Jesus himself. Salvation was always by God's grace. And so these are a shadow of the things to come, but the, the body, the reality is Christ. Paul doesn't deny the value of these things. He was a Jew himself, and, and he engaged in the Jewish festivals and other things, and it seems like, according to Acts, he kept on practicing some of those things. But he says, don't miss Jesus while focusing on the signs. Imagine getting a postcard from a relative that was at Mount Rushmore. And you see this picture of Mount Rushmore and the four presidents, and that looks really cool. And you so desperately want to go there. And so you hang that postcard up on your, on your wall, and you can't wait till the day you can see the mountain. And then that day arrives, and you show up at Mount Rushmore, and you spend more time in the gift shop looking at the postcards than you do at the mountain. That's what Paul was saying about these Gnostics. They were saying that you needed the postcards to enjoy the mountain. You needed the signs, the festivals, the, the legalistic system, all of that, in order to, in addition to Jesus, to be saved. And Paul says, no, Jesus alone is sufficient. You're complete in Christ. And then he goes on and says some other things about uh, don't play in the shadows of false worship. Because in false humility, they profess God to be so far above them that they said you could only worship him by worshiping angels. And they also denied the full deity of Jesus. Well, Paul says if you, deny, if you worship anyone but God, you'll be disqualified. Instead, maintain your connection with Jesus the head. He's the only way to come to the Father because he's God the Son. He warns them against the plain in the shadows of asceticism. Asceticism was popular in the past. Every so often it comes back again. It simply means uh, people thinking that if they would disconnect with this physical world, they could become closer to God. And so you have the monks and monasteries who, who uh, decide that they're going to swear off certain things, take a vow of, uh, of poverty and the vow of this and the vow of that. 
or back at its height, a man by the name of Simon Stylites literally built a pole and put a platform on it and sat and spent his, his days and weeks and months and years on that top of that platform away from the earth so he wouldn't be polluted by things of earth. He could just focus on God. Well, well Paul's saying that's not the way either. They were evidently, these uh, Gnostic teachers were taking some interpretations of the Old Testament laws to the extreme. And Paul says this is all based on human commands and teaching, on traditions, not on God's good commands. Again, Paul doesn't disregard God's commands. That's all God-given. The Old Testament, the Torah is God-given. But the human interpretations of it that have distorted it, that disturbs Paul. And he says stay away from that. And then finally, verse 23, Paul kind of sums up the heresy that they're dealing with by saying that it is human wisdom. It appears wise by human standards, an impressive system of religious philosophy, which is a human creation created by the false teachers rather than by God himself and is based on human pride. The false teachers attempted to parade their humility. Now, there's an oxymoron. They attempted to parade their humility, possibly by asceticism that brutally abused the body. And most things that come at us today that want us to deviate from the faith are based on human wisdom, are human creations. They're based on human pride. We always have to look to the source. What's the source of what's coming at us? What's the source of the teachings that, that, that sound good, but they're merely human? They're not divine. From a biblical historical perspective, salvation has always been by grace. God came first to Abraham before Abraham ever knew God existed. God came first to Moses and the people of Israel before they ever could take one step out of Egypt. He had to bring them out. God came first to us in our sin and he offered his love and grace. Only after one comes into relationship with God through his grace does he then give us a pattern to live by, the law, the Torah, God's teaching. The Torah, the prophets, the writings, the New Testament, of course, Jesus the Son, the in-flesh word of God. So, so God gave his, his law as a way to salvation, not as a way to salvation. Talked about this this morning in catechism. The word Torah literally means teaching, not law. It's probably been mistranslated. Literally means God's good teaching. God gave us that, not as a way to salvation, but as a way to live in gratitude for his grace. That's why the Heidelberg Catechism focuses on the law in the third section, on gratitude, on service. So what Paul is fighting here and elsewhere is not against the Torah or the Jewish traditions, but against the human misuse of God's good gifts. There's nothing wrong with Jewish traditions. There's nothing wrong with Dutch traditions. But neither of them will get you to heaven. Only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. That's the way it always was, Paul says, and that's the way it will always be. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful that you sent Jesus, your Son, that we might see you, that we might encounter you, that we might be pulled by your grace into your orbit, that we might have our sins and our guilt forgiven us, 
taken away on the cross and that you have given us the, the good gift of Jesus' righteousness so we can be in right relationship with you. Help us not to try to find any other ways, whether it's from ourselves or by other, from other people, other teachings, to try to earn our way into your good graces, but simply to rely on your good grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.